you randomly generate it. And so the name that the, the last name that the computer settled on was Garner. And so his name would be Eric Garner. And I recall after saying the name out loud, wondering why it sounded so familiar. And yet I couldn't place um, the name and I couldn't figure out why. And so I kept on repeating it to myself, Eric Garner, Eric Garner. And I remember asking myself um, if it was the name of like a past teacher or a coworker. But at this point, time began to slow. I was immediately uncomfortable and I couldn't reason why. A few moments later, I realized that Eric Garner was the name of a black man who was murdered by police. And the weight of this realization startled me. I had to pause my game, it wasn't fun. The pains of white supremacy had again found me in my own imagination. And so I could no longer imagine um, that this character could be named Eric Garner, who could enjoy um, this life in my fantasy worlds that existed um, beyond these realms. All I could think about was the final moments of the real Eric Garner's life caught on video before he was executed by police. The only version of Eric Garner I could see was one where a black man was under the constant threat of death, as Sadia Herman puts it. Due to living in a white supremacist settler colonial society, death ultimately haunted Garner's life. His meaning was yoked to the ontological condition of blackness. He did not have the opportunity to exist in freedom or justice because as Franz Fanon would note um, in Black Skin White House um, on page 95, that his skin was marked as villainous and he was sealed into objecthood. In a way, I was slightly embarrassed that this realization had startled me so much. I then immediately thought of George Floyd because this after all was in a post Floyd moment. Mr. Floyd, whose death was also commodified and held, cap and held captive within a reckoning that was severely reduced to mere diversity and inclusion state officers. And actually in revisiting this piece, it was, I happened to have revisited on the second year anniversary of the death of Alu Toyan, Toyan Salu, a 19 year old girl who had been protesting um, for Black Lives Matter. Who went missing after putting details about being sexually assaulted. And days later, she was found um, and she had been um, murdered and a man had been um, arrested uh, and had confessed to her kidnapping and raping her. And so in the aftermaths of post-Floyd, I, I recognized that Toyin's death immediately um, represented much more than a schism of individual human evils. Her death came immediately after an uprising where she was along with others were collectively mourning the murder of Mr. Floyd. And so ultimately the racial capitalist heteropatriarchal state creates and sustains these conditions where black life ends up um, meaning less than a $20 note. And so I recount my sort of mourning and me playing um, this game and to sort of show how um, this forced me to take our contemporary, contemporary reality seriously in ways that I wasn't um, thinking of necessarily before. A reality which requires that black people die in order for the world to be alive. Black mourning under constant um, reiteration. A world married to greed and profit sustained through land theft, genocide and slavery. A world where people, companies and organizations can make millions off the deaths of, um, of black men, black, black women, black trans people more broadly, um, black life forms in general. Taking seriously this reality, which requires that Black people die in order for the world to live, I want to think about, um, for a moment, about these same anti-Black logics, which we've been speaking about, and contextualize how anti-Blackness guides other sites of crisis and public mourning. Namely, through the narration um, surrounding the Ukraine and Russian war, particularly concerning 
um, particularly concerning uh, the crisis that allegedly could not happen to people whose skin uh, was white and had blue eyes. Grammar and narration dictate importance and is the means for which values gets assigned. Thus, the state's encouragement of the war was not only because war in and of itself was incredibly profitable, but it was also being lamented um, from these examples of nationalism and national collective mourning is that these incoming refugees are whites and thus more desirable. We saw this quite literally across borders and state lines when people were fleeing um, Ukraine and Black Africans and Caribbeans, uh, were, visas were denied. We also saw the hands of white supremacist logic during similar denials of trans peoples attempting to leave Ukraine. In thinking here briefly with uh, Hershawalia, we can see that the border itself then is not neutral and it's organized according to racial, gendered, sexual, and able-bodied logics. Thus reminding us that quite literally how in this world, black people's humanity is exchanged for commodity and sacrifice to sustain and maintain racial capitalism. Anti-black logics become the grammar of white supremacy and hold people to believe in racial and gendered essentialisms that index the neo neoliberal valuing of capital above life. These pro-death logics are rampant and have been more and have become more challenging and have made us prone to grief even within spaces deemed as um, progressive or potentially progressive. Transphobia has been on the rise, really at alarming levels. And for many people, this wave of fascism has been divorced from the social phenomena, um, such as you know, in movements for Black lives and with the end of American abortion rights as well. And so I'd like to challenge us to think of these happenings as belonging um, to the same cancer rather than a separate phenomena. And this is because racial and gendered essentialisms are two sides of the same coin. Thus, to engage critically and ethically within these moments of intense fascism, we must, as Black feminists, condemn the transphobia coming sometimes from our own house, that we do not further perpetuate um, the grief walking that Black folk must do. And so this discourse, for instance, if we're talking about the rampant transphobia on protecting women or the category of womanhood to biology is simply a mission to behest um, most people from this category and from humanity more generally. It's a return to their myth that biology, to the myth that biology determines everything, the same myth that makes black people occupy a beast-like position. And so it's evident in remarks, for example, by um, feminists like Chimanda Vidici, that representing a black, that their representation of black womanhood is sometimes captive and held to an assigned female body confined to the black birth canal, as Christina Sharp points out in the wake. A state in which Black women are confined by the limiting logics of European humanism, in which the child follows the condition of the unfree mother. Adichie um, and other uh, transphobic um, uh, claim, claimed feminists cling to logic that cements Black women's to Eurohumanist feminist reproductive function and insists that the patriarchy's sole role is, to, is for men to dominate women. She does this, and so do others, um, through arguing that. Um, certain logics that men mean privilege and therefore women mean weakness. And she cannot recognize and others that investments into cis womanhood alone is violence in that the same, in that the ideas generating is that the only possibility of gender is only white man and white women. And so then black womanhood or womanhood fixated on the beginning or beginning um, limits black women into their biology or rather to um, a reality that's fixed in the notion that certain bodies and thus certain life forms 
only increased, um, only exists to increase the human toll for white exploitation. The suppression of women, of bodies from womanhood that do not begin as female only furthers this humanist notions of white supremacy. And so when time began to move again, um, and I was still in this character, I decided to keep my character's name as Eric Garner. I could still live in a fantasy world where my black characters could live the perfect cookie cutter life that I'd orchestrated. Lies or fantasy rather than white supremacy shape the interior possibilities of black peoples. And so I tell this story because it speaks to the reasons of why we should imagine something larger than anti-black violence and why we should, according to Stadia Hartman, um, imagine the end of the world. If I could have imagined the possibilities for black life beyond our world, then I would not have been paralyzed by hearing my character's namesake. Rather than remembering the multitude of violence that resulted in the state-sanctioned murder of Eric Garner, I could have imagined a fictitious um, romance that felt good. And therefore, in the end of white supremacy, American romance, Sadia Hartman offers us the opportunity to imagine more. She revokes us to question the world we are currently inhabiting and to think about the conditions which shape our living. Hartman invites us to imagine the end of the world and the type of life that we can live free from white supremacy, free from a constant state of black mourning. She demands that we take seriously um, the question of apocalypse living and what freedom could look like. And if we do not do this, um, then like with um, black, certain black transphobes and things like that, we risk being embraced into the violence of settler colonialism and white supremacy, whereby um, we're constantly polluted with black pain, suffering and death. Thus, we must be brave enough to take that risk to dream of this world's ending. We must dare to imagine the stranglehold of white supremacy, which appears, um, sorry, and this is a direct quote, the stranglehold of white supremacy, which appears so unconquerable, so eternal, that it's only certain defeat is the end of the world, the death of man. And again, that was a direct quote from um, Herman. Despite what appears to be an ending of humanity, what actually occurs is the beginning of life, the beginning of black life and multiple black life forms. The world's ending as we know it signifies the death of many systems of power implicated in regulating and restricting black life. Intrinsic then to this definition of man as we come to know it in modern times is the humanist philosophy that supports meanings of progress and civilization over humanity. According to Fanon, man is what brings society into being. And that is a direct quote as well. Therefore, man becomes synonymous with white supremacist values that sustain the project of land theft, genocide, and slavery. And so for Hartman, this call for the death of man then simply means the righteous destruction of white supremacist ideology and domination. It's an end to the master and slave dialectic it creates new possibilities. In other worlds, in other words, life and death become two ends of the circle of life for black folk. When man dies, black people may finally live as self-determining peoples without um, fierce ongoing resistance. Moreover, Hartman offers us the end of the world to imagine freedoms. She demands for us to create an account about life and living and the realities we want to inhabit and to think about these ethically and the engagements that we seek to make. While real life would not provide the fairy, the fairy tale utopia of simulated dreams, a life defined by abundance rather than scarcity or immense rather than imprisonment is possible. 
And thus the end of white supremacy allows for our lives to be defined by hope instead of despair as both imagination and activism allow for the victory of the formerly and remaining colonized subject. A life that does not have to be about survival, but can instead rejoice in, um, in an existence bound to sovereignty where people choose to live good lives with each other. And on a sort of ending with this notion of both hope and grief, we can see that for black mourning, hope is still found within grief. Black life forms have sustained collective grief since 1492 and throughout our struggles for freedoms and liberation, we have maintained our position on the dig dignity of our um, infinite forms and have hoped and known for a world not indexed by white supremacy. Thus, by imagining the end of the world, we are committing ourselves to grief as a marker of change. And as my paper, um, it's entitled The Effective Pain of Black Women. And I'll be centering Sarah Ahmed's affect theory um, and also uh, citing her paper, Sarah Ahmed's paper entitled The Contingency of Pain. So I'll begin. In her keynote address entitled The Uses of Anger, Woman Responding to Racism, Audre Lorde theorizes about the utilities of anger for political action. Poignantly, Lorde prefaces the keynote address with affective relation, stating, my response to racism is anger. In this address, Lorde troubles the presumed utilities of anger whilst also defending its overall function. In arguing that fear of or guilt towards anger teaches one nothing, Lord offers a grappling with anger that does not bask in shame. Rather, Lord encourages a sense of pride towards anger, as it is an affective tool consisting of ample information and energy. As she argues, if guilt leads to change, then it can be useful, deeming it as no longer guilt, but the beginning of knowledge. Lord contests the notion that black women must only use their anger in service to the salvation of others and or the learning of others, particularly that of the broader black community and white people. She defends that black women have developed intimate relationships with anger, using it for strength, force, and insight into the material world. She affirms the pain of anger, but praises it as a tool of survival, expressing her refusal to release it until there is something as powerful to replace it towards clarity. As she advises, I begin this quote, everything can be used except what is wasteful. You'll need to remember this when you are accused of destruction, end quote. In the article entitled, Our Sons Under Siege, Published in Essence Magazine in 1999 by Barbara Reynolds, Reynolds prefaces with pain, stating, my heart catches in my throat as I stand at the window of my suburban Maryland home and watch my 18-year-old son drive away to meet friends for the evening, end quote. In expression of fear, Reynolds adds, often before I hand him the car keys, I anoint him with oil lay my hands on him and remind him of God's love and protection. And with all that, sometimes I still can't sleep until I hear him unlock the door, end quote. This crippling fear experienced by Barbara Reynolds stems from the fact that her son is a young black man in a country where white police officers can stop him on any pretext, reading a scenario for potential escalation. From an evidentiary perspective, 
Reynolds recalls the police murder of Amadou Diallo, a 22-year-old immigrant from Guinea, West Africa, who was killed a year prior in the Bronx, New York, by police officers who misidentified him for a rape suspect. The grievous incident evokes Reynolds to convene alongside other Black mothers through pain, empathizing, when I think of Diallo, I think also of countless Black men and boys who, like my son, are vulnerable to police aggression for no reason other than the color of their skin. The growing number of cases like Diallo's has Black mothers trying to protect them from the people who should be ensuring their safety, end quote. Thus, not only does pain serve as an operative emotion around which Reynolds and other Black women convene, it functions as a mediator between two or more things, people, objects, and or elements undergoing a painful impression inflicted by an opposing force. So I'm just referencing Sarah Ahmed there in how this painful impression is coming about. In the contingency of pain, Sarah Ahmed queries about the significance of pain, its casualties and urgencies, arriving at the insight that pain is bound up with the fragility and vulnerability of the surfaces of the world we inhabit, end quote. Informing how we live in relationship to these surfaces that contextualize our surrounding environments. This is in 2002 that this was published. However, Ahmed emphasizes that it is not the sensation of pain itself that conceives or makes these surfaces, but rather such surfaces were already formed. The sensations of pain or pleasure usher these surfaces, which are persons, people, objects, places, things, ushers these surfaces into materialization, creating registers of emotion as an affect rather than simply registers of emotion as an effect. Here, Ahmed inverts the commonly understood relationship between emotions and our worlds. Rather than worlds making our emotions, it is our emotions that make and define our worlds. I repeat, rather than our worlds making our emotions, it is our emotions that make and define our worlds or the things in these worlds, that sort of thing. According to Sarah Ahmed, it is through this intensification of colliding forces of pain sensations that multiple forces and worlds materialize, emphasizing their pre-existing forms. Through these flows of various pain sensations, things become read as either pain or pleasure. The worldly elements that oppose each other become more obvious through emotion, re-establishing their perceivably fixed relationships to one another. These relationships delineate the markings of surface, boundary, and fixity, in turn rendering borders of various objects, people, and things. So when these things, these worldly elements are relating to each other, we, like these relationships seem to be fixed between these things. And so you have a painful relationship to something or a pleasurable relationship something else because of the emotion that it elicits within you. Thus, pain can serve as a connector, something that can bring us closer to one another, or as a separator, something that pushes us away from one another. The establishment of these relationships, which comprise effective boundaries, 
can develop a sense of otherness between elements or certain things. According to Ahmed, pain seizes us back to our physical bodies during times of internal or external dysfunction and transgression. This continuously urges a reestablishment and affirmation of borders and boundaries. The sensations of pain or pleasure as determinants of these borders and boundaries, these personal borders and boundaries, or these institutional borders and boundaries, or anything that we feel we have an affective relationship to, whether it's pain or pleasure. Through pain's presence as an affect, not an effect, as an affect, the resulting outcomes of effective pain manifest as an action, inaction, supposedly fixed judgments upon others, separation, unity, etc., shoring up through shapes and contours of our humanist gatherings. In 1989, about 10 years before Reynolds' piece, Our Sons Under Siege, the Toronto Black Women's Collective and Black Women at York University use effective pain as a tool for intervention in their joint statement against police brutality. In this statement entitled, Support Black People and People of Color Against Police Brutality, the groups demand an end to police brutality on the working class, Black people of Toronto, and condemn such actions as racist in their intent and execution. Following condemnations of the police killings of two Black men, Lester Donaldson and Michael Wade Lawson, the woman poignantly mentioned that it is not only Black men who feel the pain of police brutality, Black women do too. So this is in 1989. They continue, Black women too are beaten up by the police. I continue this quote. On Saturday, January 28th, I went to a Justice for Wade Lawson rally in Mississauga, and it was there for the first time that I heard a woman who was a victim of police brutality speak. Oftentimes, we as women are not given the opportunity to speak and let our voices be heard. So many are left with the impression that certain things, such as being beaten up by the police, don't happen to us. This is not true. We too get harassed and physically abused by the police. So this is coming out of the joint statement between the Black Women's Collective and a Black woman at York University in 1989. End quote. According to Judith Butler in her book, Precarious Life, Grief furnishes a sense of political community by bringing to the forefront the relational ties that have implications for ethical responsibility and dependency. Precarious Life was published in 2004. And their calls for empathy and sympathy, a concept Ahmed describes as the sociality of pain. This arises in how these Black women's relationships to each other and to others particularly those who bear witness to their pain and authenticate its materiality. It is an ethical obligation that arises through being and sharing personal effective landscapes with others. Continuously, pain animates the elements whereupon we converge or diverge, connecting us or separating us. Thus, in their statement, the Black Women's Collective and the Black Women at York University offer a purview to an affective experience that demands a reckoning. It seeks external validation from the masses in regards to Black women's plight. So what becomes our ethical obligation to Black women? In their 1989 statement, the Black Women's Collective redressed their supposed loneliness of pain, imploring readers to bear witness to the pain felt by Black women victimized by state-sanctioned violence. They demand the recognition and authentication of their pain 
alongside that of their male counterparts who garner far more attention and calls to action against the male black male fight. What remains ethical and necessary is to recall how the skin, the body and other worldly surfaces within black women's realities, their lives came to be wounded in the first place. As urged by Bell Hooks, what remains is an ethical obligation to never forget the wounding, nor its historically embedded genealogies. And this is coming from Bell Hooks in 1989. As stated by Hooks, the task remains, I begin quote, to not forget the past, but to break its holds, end quote. Thus, and as prescribed by Ahmed, in order to break the bind of the past and resolve painful attachments, they must first be brought into the realm of political action. In Lauren Berlant's piece entitled, The Subjects of True Feeling, Pain, Privacy, and Politics, Berlant posits that social transformation via political action can only be concretized if it moves beyond the field of its sensual experience. Suggesting a contending with pain that resides beyond the physical form and within ulterior spheres or external spheres. Contrarily, Ahmed argues that pain has to be read while also acknowledging that pain relies on external elements that are not readable or not discernible in the pain sensation itself. Pain's readability enters into a relationship with pain's intensity of feeling. The lack of transference or commitment between, two, between these two parts, between the readability of pain and its intensity. The lack of transference between these two parts is what may render such pain as unreadable and resistant to our desire for knowledge or morality. In the statement between the Black Women's Collective and Black Women at York University, Black women claim their pain redressing the supposed silence about their victimization to police brutality and assume their rightful place as fellow victims alongside Black men. Regardless, the readability of Black women's pain is not determinant of its value, nor does it compromise or deny its authenticity and depth. The urgency of pain remains, as injustice in any form requires that someone or something is always at stake. Rather than singularizing or gendering who feels this pain within the collective, here, the Black Women's Collective affirm pain in and of itself, acknowledge its existence at the level of those who feel indiscriminate of gender. Once again, in urging a bearing of witness to this pain, the Black Women's Collective calls upon all witnesses, all readers, not only for an attentive listening, but also for a conscientious level of inhabitants in a world filled with painful collisions between surfaces, things, places, people. These are the collisions that are arise, like arising pain. In the article entitled, The Wailing Black Woman, Grief and Difference, Manushka Celeste utilizes the trope she calls the wailing black woman to conduct an analysis on effective trajectories of black mothers grieving publicly. This is coming from 2018. In questioning the potential intervention of black women's affective labor, so emotional labor, Celeste forefronts affective possibility, shoring up a utility of affect and emotion that serves as an intervening tool. The wailing black woman crystallizes the fact that it is not enough to console her, recalling Berlant's prescription that social transformation occurs beyond the sensual experience. 
The insufficiency of consolation also crystallizes the notion that the willing Black woman's grief moves beyond herself and into her community. Conclusively, as a, as a keeper of public memory, the wailing Black woman serves as a liberatory and activist act, urging viewers to imagine her pain, empathize, and identifying with it in order to urge political action and social transformation. As an effective emotion, Black women's grief is born of a suffering that derives from the death of loved ones, but remains situated in an enduring temporality of violence, racial practices that entrap Black livelihood. In North America, Black women have called for a series of action items to be fulfilled by governmental powers in response to the aforementioned statements, one being that an independent civilian complaints commission be implemented to review charges of racism in the police force, police brutality, and police killings in Ontario. As part of the Women's Coalition Against Racism and Police Violence, the Black Women's Collective contributed to another joint statement issued by the Women's Coalition Against Racism in 1989, calling for police accountability. The statement details the manners in which the Canadian government has problematized effective emotion, criticizing racism rallies as sensationalist, creating divisions and polarization and provoking violent reaction in the community." End quote. It is clear that rather than bearing witness to this pain and calls to action, the Canadian government opted to distance itself from onus, critiquing the sensation that they themselves provoke. Nonetheless, the Women's Coalition sentenced themselves within affect, stating, we are here today in an environment of grief and rage, fear and action in the wake of the killing of 14 women in Montreal. So this is coming from 1989. There was that Montreal massacre um, of 14 women. Every community must take the time to mourn this atrocity. Those killings only serve to strengthen or resolve or strengthen only serve to strengthen our resolve in taking up the responsibility to speak out where all such injustices occur. So this is coming from the Women's Coalition Statement with Black Women's Collective in 1989. Here, grief and rage, as stated in the statement, are present as incentivizing forces for the Women's Coalition. They defend sensationalist behavior demonstrated through protests and insurgencies as vessels for unity amongst all who believe that the Black community is entitled to their calls for police accountability. By 1989, it had been 10 years since the Black community urged for an independent civilian investigative body. The statement expressed its anger towards the Solicitor General of Canada at the time, who offered a measly investigative body made of ex-police officers who had no interest for Black plight or concern for Black plight. The statement concludes by stating, that an injury to one is an injury to all, highlighting the impression of external injuries committed by the Canadian government upon the skin of the Black community. Ahmed encourages a rethinking of political processes as encounters between constituents that embody injury, hurt, and pain sensations. Such encounters may be read as border disputes, materializing the collision of surfaces between antagonizing forces such as the government and those who are receiving this antagonization, who have been other, such as Black people. Essentially, it is the ever presence of affective emotion 
that amounts in such collision of surfaces and worldly frictions. As affective emotion already enters the political landscape through human interaction, leading to material effects, the question becomes not what is not what is pain, but what it does. That is my paper. Thank you. Um, so yeah, so thank you so much to all of the organizers for for hosting for hosting us and um, creating this space where we can sort of carefully engage with one another today. And also thank you to my co-panelists, um, Mackenzie and Michelle for sharing your papers today. Um, so my talk or my paper today is entitled Listening to Ghosts, Grieving Dispossession Through Horror. Um, it is sort of more of a set of methodological questions about horror, um, anti-Blackness and grief than it is an analysis or answers to any questions. It is sort of a, um, a bunch of questions that are yet unanswered and um, a bit of a departure from my regular my my regular research. Um, so I hope that we can have a conversation about it later and discuss. Um, but I consider the following questions in this talk. So how can horror serve as a tool to express and process collective Black grief? How can horror as an analytic and site of cultural production bolster our understandings of anti-Blackness uh, anti in the afterlives of slavery? And how might works of horror engage in um, radical storytelling that serve to open uh, liberatory spaces of possibility for Black life? And so I'm, I hope to use this time with you today just to offer some of my um, preliminary thoughts and early thoughts on, on these matters. And yeah, hopefully we'll have a discussion. Um, but in order to structure my talk, I'll move through a series of five vignettes um, that are drawn from visual artist Wangechi Mutu's short film entitled Nguva. And it's a film that I think defies genre but I'm going to I'm working with it as a piece of um, as a piece of horror today. Um, and I'll use each scene in this short film as a starting place to discuss some of the sort of key points of my talk. So Wangechi Mutu is um, a Kenyan contemporary visual artist uh, who's known for her collages, sculptures, films and immersive installations that grapple with questions of gender, uh, blackness, monstrosity, identity, um, beauty, power, trauma. And her work is oft she's often referred to as an Afrofuturist artist, um, but much of her work features elements of horror as well. And of her own work, she writes, quote, I mix tragedy and horror with things that are seductive for the eye because they always come together in nature. So scene one. Horror. So Nguva opens with the film, Nguva, opens with the sound of a scream and the moving, moving image of a black mermaid underwater. Um, the, vignette, the vignetting of the shot draws the viewer's eyes to the center of the frame. Uh, the image confronts the viewer, setting the context for the remainder of the film. As a genre, horror is often ignored as a generative site of analysis through which we can interrogate and challenge anti-Blackness 
and the grief that it generates. But as many scholars have pointed out, um, horror, including my co-panelists, horror, like grief, is political. Horror texts are reflections of our social world. And when I say text, I mean broadly. Films, images, literature, scholarship. Um, so these, these texts are reflections of our social world and the societal structures that govern it, including patriarchy, anti-Blackness, um, cis and heteronormativity, capitalism, and settler colonialism. If we take the quintessential ubiquitous zombie film, for instance, um, this is a horror trope that illuminates society's fears of contagion, right, of death and capitalism. Or we can look at the haunted house, for example, and the ways in which hauntings force us to reckon with the wrongs and unfinished business of the past. So horror as a genre um, doesn't shy away from exposing the realities of our social world. Instead, it confronts us with the very things in that at times provoke the most fear. Film studies scholar Isabel Cristina Pinedo offers a racial and gendered critique of the genre and outlines three key descriptors of horror. And she writes, quote, one, horror uh, disrupts the everyday world. Two, it transgresses boundaries. And three, it upsets the validity of rationality, end quote. Critic Robin Wood writes that horror happens, quote, when normality is threatened by a monster or the other, end quote. So horror is unsettling. Its investment is not in palatability or making the viewer comfortable. And as Pinedo goes on to write, horror, quote, compels us to confront the irrational, the disordered, ineffable, chaotic, and unpredictable universe which constitutes the underside of life, end quote. So an attention to the speculative, the speculative possibilities of horror ought not to be taken as a dismissal of sort of the violence that horror as a genre has upheld. Um, and I don't, I, don't, I don't want what I'm offering today to be a denial of that violence. Um, because not only do horror films and texts in general rely often on violence as a key narrative, but this violence frequently occurs at the expense of Black and racialized and Indigenous characters. Um, the monsters in these films or texts are often represented as Black or as racialized. Um, we can look at the example par excellence um, of the creature at the Black Lagoon, right, which is a classic horror film about exalting white femininity and protecting it from a shadowy Black creature from the depths. Horror, though, is more than simply a genre of cultural production. Uh, for Black people living in the wake of the transatlantic slave trade and through its contemporary manifestations in mass incarceration, in brutality across institutions, um, in shortened lifespans and high mortality, high maternal mortality rates, horror is also, to quote Ryan Pohl, um, a structuring paradigm. As Tuck and Ree write, quote, colonization is as horrific as humanity gets. Settler colonialism is an ongoing horror made invisible by its persistence. The snake in the flooded basement, end quote. I add the same about anti-Blackness. 
as an analytic horror can be mobilized to understand and critique the material psychic and even affective nature of anti-blackness and as a genre beyond solely gore and violence although those things are present a lot of the time horror created by black writers filmmakers and artists can deconstruct and rupture normative discourses and be a site through which we can maybe open new pathways to more toward a more agentive and speculative form of storytelling or counter storytelling. In the second scene of Nguva, the viewers met with a shot of a shrouded person uh, walking along a beach at dusk right at the place, as you can see, where the ocean meets the shoreline. As they walk, they appear in duplicate, slightly ahead of themselves, almost appearing to emerge out of the air or out of the sand, and their clothes are sort of billowing in the wind behind them. From the viewer's perspective, it's not immediately clear where this figure's destination is, and it's reasonable to wonder if they'll appear back where they started and haunt their same steps over again. Um, this is seen to grief time and grief space I meant to say that the space where the water meets the shoreline has been a focus of black studies scholarship, it is a place that Stephanie Smallwood calls the literal. Uh, it is an interstitial geography, it is simultaneously land and sea always changing always in process. Um, but as decolonial and black studies scholars tell us both the land and the sea are marked by these long violences of colonization and enslavement. Um, the literal is a space that is marked by loss and what Hartman calls, um, quote, an interminable grief, end quote. And this grief connects the past and the present. Hartman asks, quote, how might we understand mourning when the event has yet to end? when the injuries not only perdure, but are inflicted anew. Can we mourn what has not yet ceased happening?" End quote. Because of the ways that Blackness is understood to be marked by the rupture of the transatlantic, as well as, well, I'd say, which includes an imposed kind of kinlessness, grief is part of the vocabulary of diasporic life, and that, uh, that's from Hartman. Grief is part of the vocabulary of diasporic life. Similarly, um, in a really well-known New York Times article about the murder of Emmett Till, Claudia Rankin wrote quite clearly, quote, um, the condition of black life is mourning, end quote. Indeed, both Hartman's text and Mutu's film demand that we consider grief, not only in the context of the spatiality of this scene, but its temporality as well. In Mutu's film, as the figure walks along this interstitial space where the ocean, uh, where the water meets the land, she disrupts what we know about time and space. In this space of grief at the literal, the figure's movement creates a disturbance, a temporal disturbance that ruptures the linearity of time demanding that we consider the relation of past, present, and future to this space. And in doing so, she disrupts as well that which deterministically condemns Black subjects to endless future death and endless future grief, um, the time of modernity that asks Black and colonized people to wait for freedom 
and in which we, were, we are always 100 seconds from midnight on the doomsday clock, which we are <laughs> right now, according to the doomsday clock. Scene three, ghosts and future ghosts. In the third scene of Nguva, the viewers met with a shot of a forested area where a ghostly veiled woman in black creeps like a witch across the frame looking around. A second specter of her appears moving in the opposite direction at the same time. Her body appears translucent and ghostly. Thinking with horror uh, means thinking with ghosts and phantoms and haunting. Following Toni Morrison, an attention to ghostliness can tell us about the ways in which Black subjects are made invisible and absent. As an analytic, ghostliness and haunting can attend to the role of memory, of grief, and willful forgetfulness, as well as the ways in which histories of anti-Blackness are repressed and shrouded in silence, at least in dominant discourses. For Gordon, Avery Gordon, and others, um, haunting, ghostliness, and spectrality as analytics all attempt to apprehend that which has meaning in the very fact that it is invisibilized or absented. They attempt to articulate um, a vocabulary with which to consider what they call seething presences, that are, that's a quote, that are very much there and yet not there. Haunting captures the ways in which forms of social violence too that have been obscured make themselves known when something thought to be in the past comes bubbling back to the present. Settler colonialism and anti-Blackness as systems of domination that traffic in death and dispossession fears ghosts, but also produces them, and ghosts demand to be acknowledged. Scene four, we want to be our own monsters. And that's a quote from uh, Walida Imarisha, who co-edited Octavia's Brood. The next scene of the film, cast in red, uh, starts with a close-up of indiscernible, undulating movement. As the shot widens, the viewer sees that the movement is a body, a person, moving, dancing, writhing. The scene is unsettling, um, and long strands of hair seem to drip off of this figure's hands, and they smile and grimace, and their eyes are wide. And from the viewer's perspective, it is impossible to discern in which direction this figure is actually moving. Is, are they moving forward or backward um, through time or space? It's impossible to tell. The image slowly uh, dissipates. Horror is also the realm of monsters. Anathema to the human, the monster is a creature that creeps in the shadows and is the perpetual threat that lurks in the unknown in closets, under the bed, uh, in the wilderness, perhaps um, threatening disarray at any moment. Barbara Creed, who famously wrote about the monstrous feminine in the context of horror, um, noted that the central function of the monstrous figure is to create the encounter between order and that which threatens order. Unable to gain access to modernity, the monster remains always on the outskirts, on the outside perpetually fixed in pre-modernity, um, outside of the realm of rationality, reason, or rule within, again, dominant discourses. And so in Mutu's film, 
this encounter with the monstrous is um, is staged against the the backdrop of the land and water, uh, the land and water, and it is this um, this figure, this black feminine figure that threatens to dissolve the stability of the world. However, in the space of this short black horror film, what does it mean to threaten to dissolve the stability of the world when order and stability as we know them are products of liberalism and late capitalism and modernity and anti-blackness? Can we, to quote Spillers, claim the monstrosity in order to rewrite it? And as Fred Moten writes, quote, objects can and do resist, end quote. Monsters, I suggest, do too. So scene five, the work of ghosts and monsters. In the final scene of Nguva, we are confronted with a shot of the mermaid lying on the grass. Light is emanating from her face and eyes, and almost like a fish out of water, she appears to gasp and then take what we could presume to be her last breath. The film fades to black and her image remains burned on the screen in, in negative. What will happen to her now? Now that she's been made a ghost, will she haunt the land and water seeking retribution? Revenge is a common horror subgenre. The revenge plot can be a generative place to express and theorize collective grief, anger, and desire for freedom in the realm of the speculative. So Tuck and Ree write, quote, unruly and full of desire, unsettling, around the edges of haunting, whispers revenge, the rage of the dead, a broken promise, a violent ruin, the seeds of haunting, an engine for curses, revenge and justice overlap, feed and deplete each other. Revenge is one head of the many-headed creature of justice, end quote. They go on to write um, that the act of, quote, wronging wrongs is the work of now and future ghosts and monsters, the supply of which is ever growing, end quote. In Revenge Capitalism, um, Max Haven distinguishes revenge from what they call an avenging imaginary. An avenging imaginary is not about individualized acts of revenge, rather it is a liberatory abolitionist stream of sustained collective action against a system that continues to enact enormous injustice and dispossession. As Tuck and Ree note, revenge is not often something we spend time theorizing because it's considered maybe too risky or too uh, unprincipled. So to be clear, I have to, you know, I feel like I have to say this, maybe I don't have to say this, but this is not a call for like a vengeful brutality or violence. Um, and, you know, I say this in recognition of the ways in which capitalism breeds vengefulness. But if we think for a moment with revenge um, or this avenging imaginary in the context of this film, and in the realm of the speculative and fictional, perhaps we can understand it as a demand to repay an unpayable debt, um, to appease the ghosts and the monsters that systems of domination like anti-Blackness and settler colonialism produce. Um, perhaps we can think with revenge as not unrelated to justice, 
um, something which in the realm of the speculative opens space for us to think with collective anger and collective grief and to express grief. Um, a space in which we refuse to accept empty and repetitive apologies offered by institutions. One that acknowledges collective exhaustion and honors a revolutionary and abolitionist imaginary that yes, dismantles and tears down this world in order to build it anew. So to conclude, yes, I have probably asked more questions than I have likely answered in this talk, but it is my hope that I have for a moment taken horror um, seriously as a, as, a, as a generative site of inquiry um, and speculative or form of speculative cultural production that can create space for us to think and talk and move through grief. Um, so thank you, and I look forward to our discussion. This conference invites us to think of grief as an as an affect, affective landscape uh, in relation to loss and in relation to loss and maybe even a radical um, affective source for change. Um, my research focuses on the denial and repression of grief. So um, it's when loss is historically erased, politically denied and collectively repressed, can, does grief disappear or can it be found in unusual places? Um, so one of the foundational texts of Turkish literature, Yaban, uh, the translation, there's a trans English translation with the title Stepmother Art, uh, begins with a mystery. After the Battle of Sakarya, which is a foundational moment and narrative in, uh, for the Turkish nation state, it, it was fought against the Greek army. Uh, the enemy army, it's Quote, the enemy army left in its wake a vast, desolate wasteland. Anatolia has been torched. The war crimes committee is searching among the ruins for the burnt skeletons of civilians when it comes up in a tattered, charred notebook, the contents of which are presented in the novel. The committee asks local villagers about what happened to the men who had penned the, the notebook. Nobody knows. The officer is taken aback by villagers' apathy. How is that possible? He asked. How could you know? How could you not know what happened to someone who had been living among you for years? End quote. How does one not know what one ought to know is an essential question in trauma theory. Difficult pasts that have been shaped by war, violence, and genocide create fractures in, in, in the individual and collective memory, as well as psyche in many different ways. But it is not the fracturing or the fragmentation of memory in the aftermath of a traumatic experience that creates a traumatic, traumatic void uh, between what one ought to know and what one does not know. Rather, it's a rupture between a traumatic event and its meaning. The canonical texts of trauma theory posit that the traumatic experience is precisely what evades comprehension in its experience, in the experiencing of a given event in the first place. 
When our capacity to make sense of the world is crippled, we find that the words we need to depict that injury also escape us. That is why trauma returns and seeps into the present through flashbacks and the symptoms of an unknowable memory. Quote, what returns to haunt the victim, Kurt argues, quote, is not only the reality of the event, but also the reality of the way that its violence has not, e has not yet been fully known, end quote. The ungraspable nature of world-shattering experiences imbues victims with a kind of traumatic unknowability, which is then passed on to other lives, relationships, and future generations. There is another side, however, to the gaps of knowledge associated with difficult pasts. Histories of racial and colonial violence are often concealed by the very same socioeconomic structures, truth regimes, and discursive and affective economies that are constituted by that violence. How or whether those histories are remembered or forgotten by individuals and collectives depends heavily on the social, social, economic, and affective investments of those parties in the present day realities shaped by those histories. The issue of how one does not know what one ought to know is framed as a question of privilege and complicity as well as of exploitation and domination in post-colonial scholarship. As such, gaps in knowledge about difficult pasts cannot be explained away as the result of accidental omissions, epistemic, epistemic oversights, or collective amnesia. Rather, as has been discussed in recent scholarship about epistemologies of ignorance, this willful ignorance is actively produced in ways that maintain racial oppression and colonial structures that privilege certain groups while marginalizing, dispossessing, and exploiting the rest of the population. In the work of Manu Vimalaseri, Juliana Hupeigs, and Alyosha Goldstein, this quote, aggressively made and reproduced, effectively invested and effectively distributed type of ignorance, quote, is transformed into an act they, that they refer to as colonial unknowing. In that sense, we do not forget or ignore, but actively unknow as the consequence of a profound investment in maintaining the failure to comprehend the realities of colonialism. So the crisis of knowledge in these two bodies of literatures, trauma theory and post-colonial scholarship, seems to dwell on different aspects of well-known binaries. Unknowability in trauma theory entwines an event, while unknowing in postcolonial scholarship emerges in a structure. An unconscious, passive relationship with the unknowable is imagined in the former, while an active, conscious act of unknowing is posited in the latter. While victims lie at the heart of traumatic unknowability, perpetrators, accomplices, and those who benefit from unknowing are addressed in the scholarship on willful ignorance. However, traumatic unknowability does not just encapsulate victims' unconscious responses to traumatic events, nor does colonial unknowing solely occur within the bounds of a structure in which perpetrators consciously ignore and forget. Rather, as I argue here, 
some forms of collective loss can only be understood in the entangled simultaneity of these two crises of knowledge. In my work, I respond to the question of how we do not know what we ought to know by investigating this complex relationship between traumatic unknowability, unknowability and colonial unknowing. And grief, denied, repressed, obfuscated, trans transformed, play a key role in it. But let me give you a brief context about the afterlife of the Armenian genocide and the ghostly existence of the Armenians in Turkey. The modern Turkish state was founded, on, founded in 1923 on the ruins of what remained from the Ottoman Empire after World War I, just eight years after lands that had been occupied by Armenians for 3,000 years were methodically and brutally emptied from emptied of their populations, and approximately 1 million Armenians were killed in the process of the so-called deportation. The historical overlap of the Armenian genocide with World War I, as well as the many other catastrophes that Ottoman society experienced during the collapse of the empire, provide fertile ground for the unknowing of the Armenian genocide. To this day, Official and popular discourses in Turkey regarding the Armenian issue are constructed around a war causality narrative that willfully ignores and unknowns the systematic expulsion and extermination of Armenians, which was carried out with the aim of Turkifying Anatolia. However, we should also bear, bear in mind that the years surrounding the Armenian genocide were full of catastrophic traumas for many of the people living under Ottoman rule. Between 1912 and 1923, the Ottomans suffered heavy losses in the two Balkan wars. In varying de degrees carried out witness were complicit in a genocide against the Armenians and endured four years of conflicts during World War I which was followed by four more years of combat during Turkey's, Turkey's national struggle, or as, this, as it is called in Turkish, war of independence, against the occupation of the allied powers of Britain, France, Russia, Italy, and Greece. It should be expected that such catastrophic, almost apocalyptic trauma would deeply wound the pre people's collective memory. While it is true that much has been repressed, much also is actively unknown. That is why approaching the Armenian genocide in Turkey necessitates working through, through binaries such as victim and perpetrator, event and structure, unconscious and conscious, and remembering and forgetting, while also moving beyond them. Memories of mass violence, complicity, and confiscation are faced by official history in Turkey which presents the past in a dream configuration. The crisis of knowledge is a two-way street. Traveling in one direction, the Turkish dream is a dream about a people's awakening amidst catastrophe. It's a dream reproduced in the present of the liberation of Anatolia from the allied powers and a people's remaking of a country for themselves from the occupied remnants of the Ottoman, Ottomans through anti-imperial armed struggle. In other direction, in the other direction, the erasure, denial, and repression of every dream and catastrophe that 
predates the Turkish dream is maintained through an aggressively made and reproduced, effectively invested and effectively distributed form of ignorance, colonial unknown. What happened to the 2 million Armenian inhabitants of Anatolia? What happened to Assyrians, Chaldeans, Yazidis? Who settled in the neighborhoods, villages, and houses that were emptied in the, of their inhabitants? The settler colonial and genocidal complicity in the Turkification of Anatolia is obfuscated in a Turkish dream of national awakening. All that took place before the awakening is buried in the unknowable depths of the sleep prior to it. Through a close reading of Turkish literary texts, my project follows the traces of what remains and in remaining continues to find ways to make itself be heard and seen in the spaces between the fictional and factual, personal and social, public and private. Today, I do not have to, uh, time to analyze novels, but I want to take you now um, back to the novel I mentioned at the beginning of my talk to just provide one example of maybe where to look or how to search for grief after colonial erasure. Yakub Kadri Ziaban, dated 1933, uh, in, in, in Yaban, uh, the genocide of Armenians has already moved to a state of repression. There is no mention of the Armenians. Uh, it has been 17 years now. There's no mention of the Armenians, nor the Armenians' claims of massacre in the, massacres in this text. The narrative takes place in a remote village in central Anatolia in the days of national struggle. While the Armenians are completely erased from the narrative, Turkified Anatolia resembles nothing like the dream that the, that the official uh, Turkish um, narrative promotes. Rather, Anatolia is depicted as a panorama of anguish, quote, hewing with secret sorrows this ground upon which we live will either swell and burst open, or it will collapse, caving in on itself with a terrific roar." End quote. So what secrets does the ground carry? Which sorrows does it hide? The narrative does not really tell us. But the interpretations of Yaban in Turkey seem to have a consensus about the theme of the novel. It depicts the agony of the Turkish intellectual who confronts the reality of Anatolia and Anatolian people, the villagers. But I believe there is more to it. In 1921, Yakup Kadri had participated in the investigations of the Tetkiki Mezalim Heyeti, Committee of Investigation of Atrocities, with Haldedip and Yusfakshu, two other writers. So right after the Greek army retreated, and six years after the Armenian genocide, Yakub Kadri was in Anatolia. Uh, at the time, he wrote a short article um, uh, in a newspaper titled, To the People of the Villages Which, re which Were Burned by the Barbarians, which I find very important in terms of also understanding his novel, Yaban. Um, in the article, he's directly addressing the Anatolian people, depicting his agony about facing them in the aftermath of such a catastrophe, war, the Greek army has caused, uh, the catastrophe that the Greek army has caused. But the words of Yakub, but the words he picks, the tone of the letter, the feelings he expresses, 
are one of bewilderment. Anatolian people look like, quote, the specters of the gun generations who returned from hell, end quote, to the writer. For me, he writes, quote, you are fossils that came out from the bottom of the earth, end quote. The encounter with the destitution of the Anatolian Turks, what he calls as the worst disgrace of his life, leads him to say, quote, in this moment, I sense something that resembles to despite and rage in my heart toward all of you, end quote. He continues, quote, I'm scared of you. I'm scared of you like a murderer scared from the corpse of the man he murdered. Even though, even the thought of your three-year-old kids leaves me without a dossier and courage, end quote. As seen in these sentences, the affective experience of witnessing uh, here, the grief turns into horror, disgust, rage, so fast in the lines. And there seems to be something unsettled and excess in what Yakub Kadri depicts. What is the fear associated with three-year-old kids? Who do the villagers look like? Why do the villagers look like specters of the gun generations to the writer? Or why does grief turn to rage so fast? How does disgrace lead to such fear? The article doesn't tell us, but through research, we, can know, we know that in 1914, so seven years, six, seven years before Sakarya uh, battle and Yakub Kadri's visit to the region, more than 100,000 Armenians lived in Ankara and its regions where the novel took place and Yakub Kadri visited. The, the Armenians were spread across 88 towns and villages of Ankara. There were 105 churches, 11 monasteries, and 126 Armenian schools in a lively Armenian life in these places. So Haimana, Mihalchik, and Sirisar, where both Yakub Katri and his pro protagonist Ahmed Jalal visited, included Armenian inhabitants. Through Armenian testimonies, we are able to follow how thousands of Armenians were for forced to Eskishehir train station uh, when the deportation decree arrived. And here, they were divided into two groups, one that were put on, onto the wagons, wagons and the other group that was forced to a death march towards Slisya. From both groups, only a small number survived. We also know that some groups of Armenians never made it to the train station. They were executed in their own villages. So then, can we expect that the excess in Yakub Kadri's words, the depictions of Anatolian and Anatolian Turks, comes from the repressed memory of the Armenian genocide. In his depictions of horror that stems from facing Anatolian Turks destitute, are there also the horrors of the Turkification of Anatolia? In the disgust and fear the protagonist attaches to the bodies of the villagers, are there signs of an anxiety of proximity for being too close to, to the ghosts of the Armenians? I don't have any time left. I don't have any time to analyze the novels, 
or novel or the Yakup Kadri's letters. Uh, but I argue that the depictions of Anatolia in Yaban and in many other Turkish literary texts do carry signs of this proximity, being too close to the ghosts. So the specters of the gun generations, or another quote, the fossils that came out from the bottom of the earth, or um, the ashen earth rotting on banks and congealing, a landscape that is hewing with secret sorrows that the narrator, narrator feels will either swell and burst open or collapse, caving it on itself with a ter terrific roar, are depicting layers and layers of catastrophe inflicted on Anatolian soil. Because when the loss is historically erased, politically denied and collectively repressed, the unrated traumas reflect and transfer their horror onto the landscapes where they were inflicted. In Turkish literary texts, the mountains and valleys carry the echoes of the unknown. The rivers flow with the memories of the blood spilled. Between traumatic unknowability and colonial unknowing, the landscape knows and remembers the Armenians. After colonial erasure, the dreams, nightmares, and ghosts, as well as wishes, desires, fears, and horrors that appear in the texts, carry signs of what is rendered spectral between Turkey and its history, or between today and history. And grief itself is a specter there. It exceeds language, refuses, refuses endings, and unsettles meanings and waits for recognition. Thank you. So, um, the title of my talk today is uh, Grieving a Future, Russian Colonialism, Kyrgyz Poetry, and the End of Times. Uh, today, I'd like to raise the following question. What does it mean to grieve a future? This question is at the heart of my talk, and I'd like to reflect on it by discussing two pre-Soviet Kyrgyz bards. Kalhul Bay Ulu and Arstanbek Buylash Ulu. These bards uh, lived in the 19th century when the Russian Empire was expanding its influence towards Inner and Central Asia. Both of them are known for being critical of the growing influence of Russia. Put simply, uh, Kalhul and Arstanbek uh, saw the advance of Russia as a sign of an upcoming apocalypse. Since these bards uh, passed away before Russia began actively colonizing Kyrgyz tribes, um, to be precise, Arstanbek uh, passed away at the early stage of colonization, but uh, Kalahol uh, died uh, much earlier. Anyways, many Kyrgyz people today uh, believe that uh, Arstanbek and Kalahol were clairvoyants people with extrasensory capacities who predicted the Russian colonization of Central Asia, the subsequent collapse of the local forms of life, as well as the challenges of modernity. Uh, scholars of Kyrgyz literature uh, would tell you that Kalahul and Arstanbek are prominent representatives of a pre-Soviet tradition of Islamic apocalyptic poetry, which is called Zamana. And the word Zamana derives from the Arabic uh, word Zaman, 
which means time or epoch. Now, uh, Zamana is a poetry uh, of grief and mourning. But since Zamana bards such as Kalehul and Arstanbek sang about the events to come, their grief did not focus on the troubles of the past or present. Rather, it was shaped by a conception of distant but profoundly abject future. Apocalypse is not a popular topic today in the social sciences, in anthropology or sociology, and God forbids, political science. Uh, today, however, instead of dismissing Kalerol and Arstenbeck as examples of reactionary romanticism or religious fanaticism, I'd like to draw on their poetry to reflect on apocalyptic sensibilities as an ethical resource for contemporary times. In other words, my question is, how can the trope of apocalypse inform our attempts to imagine and anticipate the future of Anthropocene? Before I move on to this question, uh, I'd like to say a few words about the Kyrgyz people, about their political context before the onset of, of the Russian colonialization. Uh, in the 19th century, uh, the people who, under Soviet rule, would become the Kyrgyz nation constituted several tribes that inhabited the foothills of the Tianshan Mountains and the Fergana Valley. They were Muslim pastoral nomadic communities with no permanent attachment to a particular territory. Through the 19th century, the Kyrgyz tribes were surrounded by three large polities which you can see here on the map. Uh, so in red here, we see the territory inhabited by Kyrgyz tribes in the 19th century. Um, so uh, to, to the north from Kyrgyz, there was the Russian expanding Russian empire. To the uh, east, there was the Qing Chinese empire. And to the south, uh, there was a Khanate of Kakand. Throughout the 19th century, um, the Khanate of Kakant was expand, expanding to the north and subjugated a number of Kyrgyz tribes. Not willing to submit to the authority of Kakant, some tribes reached out to the Russian Empire and asked for protection. At that time, the Russian Empire already controlled a large part of Inner Asia and was advancing to the south. Ultimately, by the end of the 19th century, Russia not only gained control over the Kyrgyz tribes, but also colonized most of Central Asia, including, surprise, surprise, the Khanate of Kakan. So uh, this was uh, the context in which both Kalerul and Arstanbek lived and composed their poetry. Uh, their poetry, they became famous uh, mostly in the first half of the 19th century and the early second half of the 19th century, exactly at the time when Kyrgyz tribes were squeezed between the Khanate of Kakant and Russia. Uh, and uh, also I'd like to note that in the absence of written culture, uh, Kyrgyz nomads relied on oral tradition. So Arstanbek and Kalerul uh, transmitted their poems orally uh, until they were recorded uh, at the beginning of the 20th century by early Soviet ethnographers. Now, uh, 
this is a brief brief uh, background and now i'd like to uh, to read a few excerpts from the most popular poems by by these bards or poets uh, so first uh, let's focus on arstanbek his most popular uh, poem is called tar zaman which can be roughly translated as the time of grief our elders and our learned people told us that there will be a time when a yellow-skinned, blue-eyed Russian will come. He will harvest our grass and he'll occupy the land. Everything in this world he will forcefully take. What kind of time is this, my people? By the way, the translation is mine. It is very non-artistic. It's from the Kyrgyz original, but my intention is to convey the, the meaning. When that Russian comes, multiple cities will emerge, but our settlements will vanish. The child of your womb will become his soldier. He'll take the lands that give us bread. He'll take the falls from our mares. He'll take the bravest of our men. Great suffering will fall on our people. That time is the time of grief. The rich will thrive and prosper, but the poor will bleed and mourn. This is a very long poem. Uh, uh, but these are a few examples of how Arstenbeck imagines the consequences of Russian colonization. Describing the future dispossession of Kyrgyz people, he anticipates profound transformations of their form of life. More specifically, throughout the poem, Arstenbeck talks about changing ethical norms, everyday habits, and also speculates that Islam the the major religious tradition of the kyrgyz people would vanish as a result of colonization now let's move to kalirul uh, and his main and most uh, famous uh, uh, poem is called akhir zaman here the title can be translated roughly as the end time and also the title here uh, alludes more explicitly to uh, the Islamic tradition uh, specifically derives from the uh, it, it derives from the notion of Akhiru uh, Zaman uh, in Arabic. Uh, so now, yeah, let me read a few excerpts. Esteemed ancestors passed to us, vague image of the final time. Unlike the holy prophet Adam, those people will be short in size. Unlike all those who, come, who came before, they will be rude to their neighbors. Not looking for the grassy valleys, on bare stones they will be settled. They won't hear each other's howls. The coming is the time of deafness. Their toils will see no end. The coming is the time of haste. Their mullahs will fade away. The coming is the time of weak religion. They will forget to fast and pray. The coming is the time of shallow faith. We now are destitute, but they'll be better off. Just watch this epoch pass tomorrow. Ours is the time of dearth. The coming is the time of sorrow. Here we see that Kalahul gazes at the future in light of both the time immemorial of the prophet Adam and the mid-19th century of the pastoral Kyrgyz. While mourning the upcoming social transformations, unlike Arstanbek, Kalihul notes that the final time will, be, will bring mass literacy, new consumption opportunities, 
and better life standards. These things are things that most 19th century Kyrgyz people, of course, could not even dream about. However, insofar as Islamic ethics and the local form of life have to be sacrificed, Kalaho sees such rearrangement as nothing more than dearth exchange for sorrow. What is more intriguing, Kalahol expresses genuine curiosity about this, dress, about this dreadful future. Here is a, an excerpt from the same poem. No time is like the end time. If we could see it, no regrets. But our life is brief like rain. We'll never reach the end time anyway. To sum up, as you can see through their poetry, both Arstanbek and Kalihul anticipate and grieve the colonial future of their people. What I find remarkable here is that neither of them speculates about possible solutions to the upcoming problems. Instead, both poets mournfully accept the future collapse of their world. But note that Kalihul not only accepts the future apocalypse, he is also curious about it. He regrets that his life is too short to let him be a witness of the end time. I'll return to this point in a moment. As I noted earlier, apocalypse is rarely a research topic in the social sciences. And this is strange, given that we have never been as close to the end of times as we are now today. Now we are facing uh, the ever-present danger of nuclear war, unequal distribution of violence around the globe, the increasing scarcity of natural resources, the increasing dependence of capitalism on resource extraction and sustainable warfare, the climate change, antibiotic-resistant bacteria, the sixth extinction, and the list, the list goes on. These dangers are widely discussed today, but the mainstream discourses approach them through either denial, like denial of climate change, or hope, like hope for finding a universal solution to all these problems. In fact, the aspiration to solve the challenges of modernity is so popular that it has already become profitable. Think of electric cars or the whole industry with the tech eco-friendly. Among possible solutions, people mention new sources of energy, bio and geoengineering, artificial intelligence, climate engineering, colonization of other planets, and so on and so forth. While I don't want to dismiss the importance of building more sustainable forms of life, I'd like to stress that the current search for solutions is not taking place in a political vacuum. Instead, it is taking place within a geopolitical structure that, to quote the political scientist Jairus Grove, renders some forms of life principle and other forms of life useful, useful or inconsequential, end quote. I'd like to further draw on Jairus Grove and argue that we inhabit what he calls savage ecology, an ecology where I quote, the benefactors of the world's greatest minds searching for breakthroughs in neuroscience, neuroscience artificial intelligence, space exploration, and even climate engineering are primarily the martial divisions of the world's governments, end quote. 
In such a world, survival is inevitably a right of a privileged minority. And this brings me to my main point. Instead of relating to the future of Anthropocene through denial or hope, I prefer to follow Arstanbek and Kalihul and accept that a collapse of our world as we know it is inevitable. Denial and deceptive hope then can be replaced by grief. Grieving a future requires a pessimistic standpoint, but such pessimism, I suggest, is not a manifestation of political laziness. Rather, it can shape more mature ways of grappling with the horrors of Anthropocene and of anticipating possible post-apocalyptic futures. To quote Grove again, an apocalypse is always more on and, and less than an extinction. And whatever makes a life out of the mess we are currently in will depend in some ways on how we come to understand our contemporary condition." End quote. Jairus Grove argues for the importance of affirmative approaches to apocalypse. Being affirmative means pessimistically accepting our apocalyptic condition while remaining attuned to and invested in possibilities of post-apocalyptic futures. I argue that Grove's sensibility resonates with Kalihul's tragic curiosity. While Kalihul does not speculate about a post-apocalyptic future, he is genuinely curious about the end time. For him, the inability to witness the end time is profoundly, tragically regretful. To sum up, I have put Jairus Grove, contemporary political scientist, into conversation with pre-Soviet Kyrgyz bards. While Grove elaborates his pessimistic approach to apocalypse by drawing on post-structuralist thinkers such as Deleuze and William Connolly, Kalihul and Arstanbek draw on the Islamic tradition and the experiences of the 19th century Kyrgyz. As such, the example of these Kyrgyz bards shows that pre-modern experiences, traditions, and theologies warrant our attention as valuable ethical resources for thinking about our future. Like Grove, Kalahul, and Arstanbek encourage us not to self-deceptively dismiss the possibility of apocalypse, but to face it. Um... So if you feel it's becoming too heavy, feel free to step away. And I also want to caution against drawing comparatives to communities, even though uh, genocide is a reality for many. Um, while our racialized histories may be bound together by oppression and resistance, there's much needed centering of non-Western, indigenous, Black, and Tamil readings of how affect such as pain is perceived and processed, who is allowed to grieve and who writes on this and whose proximity to events is privileged in past and present. As such, this work is indebted to the theoretical groundwork laid by Alexis Pauline Gums, Robin Kimmerer, Tyson, Junka Porta, Christina Sharp, and others who position their approach towards mapping intimacies outside, near, or despite the limited possibilities which capitalism offers. For my presentation, I wish to pose a few questions. 
uh, around the ethics of art and memorialization to disturb our field of view, which is often created for us by media representation and state communication. In my presentation, I propose that protest is a form of gendered and raised grieving and that the Gardner Expressway in particular was a site of memorialization for landless people. My presentation is aligned with existing research, which concludes that racialized youth engaged in protests are often sought out to be criminalized in the media and state narratives, and thus deemed not worthy of historical consideration or archival presence. Having reached out to the Ontario archives about the lack of materials on the Tamil community, I was told to seek out and compile my own. When I pressed as to why the European community is well represented in their archives and not subject to the same assignment, which I personally found exciting, I was met with silence. So in this work itself seeks to then contribute to the larger global narrative emerging around memorialization and archives in the form of monuments, street signs, and museum collections which choose to celebrate the architects of genocide, settler colonialism, slavery, and their productivity. In what ways has this forceful critique against and disruption of colonial continuities then created space to consider how memorialization by those affected may look like? What public grieving, both meanings of the term, could allow to come to the surface? and in which ways the loss of land or disappearances of people complicates such attempts to unearth painful histories. My positionality is entangled in this exploration of the themes as a Tamil person who fled the war and has inherited a history uh, through the generations, knowing violence and racism against Tamils on the island, meaning that each generation can recall a pogrom, war, or mass violence in their lifetime alongside the impact of colonialism. Due to decades of war, disappearances, and genocides, as there were more than one, entire communities have only lived in trauma. Mourning in the Tamil community has a long history, and it lo its logic defies that of Western colonial notions of affect and grief, which are often timed. This work is also part of a project that I'm undertaking, uh, which looks at race and colonial and capitalist aesthetics, uh, in particularly in and around racialized people. And so to give you a bit of context for those of you who are not familiar with local histories, in May 2009, over 5,000 Tamil people had stormed onto the Spadina Ram to the Gardner Expressway, which is a major artery connecting the downtown core of Chakranto to the rest of the greater Chakranto area. They demanded that media and politicians alike pay attention to the genocide that was about to unfold on the island of Sri Lanka, if not already in progress. The idea to get on the ramp was a call to action, which came about spontaneously by youth using social media and at that time it was Facebook and uh, on their cell phones, to pivot a large crowd to the Gardner Expressway, a crowd which had already been at Queen's Park and also various embassies 
um, but was continued to be ignored in those locations, which are highly politicized spaces, political institutions, versus the highway was seen as a neutral space, uh, a conduit, so to say, between the suburban and the urban uh, population. Uh, drawing on long-standing historical strategies of civil disobedience, as observed on Turtle Island, and here examples from the indigenous and black communities abound, as well as during anti-colonial struggles on the island. On the island itself, surrounded by heavy artillery, the people of the northern and eastern region, in their final moments, which transpired in the so-called no-fire zone, meaning people who were unarmed and among those uh, people who had been hospitalized were herded into the zone and then um, proceeded to be shot to death. However, the island's chauvinist government refutes any death toll data, has a long record of pardoning and freeing war criminals who have faced prison time or would have otherwise faced prison time and refuses to acknowledge the large number of people it has disappeared since the 1980s. In fact, the island became famous for ranking highest on two data points, disappearances of civilians and journalists. The numbers game is to evade responsibility. The government continues to deny and instead chooses to celebrate its perceived victory by aggressive neo-colonial strategies, which entail militarization of war zones, illegal settlements and removal of people from their homes and land, if not disappearances. Um, sexual violence, or the erection of many religious and military statues worshipping masculinity. The landscape has been altered by the number of statues that are illegally placed in areas which are predominantly Tamil. So returning to the question of how many people were in the war zone, the state will not say except when they counted how many land plots or houses they took, they categorized them as abandoned as people were fleeing um, the number the, the current state then cites is 300,000 Tamils, of which more than half no longer exist. The genocide itself has been declared by the United Nations and the Canadian government as an unquestionable historical tragedy which transpired. Yet, if you ask a Sri Lankan official on the island about the events, they will deny the number of deaths. Uh, try to publicly mourn a Tamil person who was murdered, and you will be arrested, uh, beaten up, spat at, disappeared, or the arrest will likely follow a lengthy incarceration till death or disappearance. The mothers who ask about their children since 2009 are met with apathy and evasion. The tactic by the government is to wait out their deaths so the inquiries stop. If the last person to hold your memory or know your name is gone, then you can be erased. A record, on the other hand, is easier to delete. The Gardner Expressway that evening was full of people, particularly mothers with their children and young women leading the front line. Spending late hours on a cold night in tow were treated as any racialized protesters have been historically in Canada, instead of stating that racism and sexism permeated the perception, description, and evaluation of events the media and public largely chose to hide this in thinly veiled or direct comments ranging from disrupting Mother's Day, importing conflicts, ungratefulness, or calling people terrorists. 
a term which has been inscribed onto Indigenous Black, Sikh, and Tamil bodies through Canadian state laws. Even after these protests, on the 10th anniversary in 2019, media representation continued to suggest that the protests were of little use and failed to accomplish what they set out to do. Mostly male scholars and leaders of the Tamil community were represented in interviews. And while opinions ranged about the events themselves, there was a dominant theme repeated that this protest was not productive or as one scholar put it, not the best tactic or fail to have distinct leaders. These existing analyses are skewed in gender misrepresentation of events, but also miss out or even ignore what photojournalists were showing from the front lines. These were the people leading protests, organizing and even staging images of the massacre that the state media on the island kept out of the news. And the media here was not adept at getting uh, from the sources on the ground. What is still amiss is not only a much needed corrective to past and current depiction of the protest on the Gardner Expressway and media, and perhaps questioning which voices are continued to be left out, but also a way in which a protest led by women on the front lines has been dismissed as ineffective through a Western lens of productivity, goal setting, and achievements. Um, if we instead view grievances and grieving as part of a process employed for and by Tamil communities in protest, then it escapes the colonial logic of needing a starting, an endpoint, an outcome, a concrete definition. However, mourning in the Tamil context is a continuous act that is alive, moving, shifting, and passed on through different generations who have faced violence. As Jeffrey Scare explains, to create memorials is a communicative act. So the act of communicating itself is part of the memorial. When people pass away, for instance, in Tamil culture, you host the local community in a public setting, such as your front yard, who then engage in a combination of airing grievances or injustices, loud wailing led by women and holding each other, crying profusely. The first step of grieving is protest and or put in other words, the acknowledgement of a wound and injustice. How do you hold the tension of not being allowed to mourn or even speak the names of people or ask for bodies of the dead when you have experienced the violence? What happens when you can't even take the first step to grieving at the side of trauma? In this image, which is meant to call attention to the injustice transpiring you see women engaged in a reenactment of events as they were unfolding. Yet it is also reenactment to allow for grieving that the rest of the crowd was experiencing, something the media could not, uh, could not have picked up on while focused on the critique that children and elderly were being endangered, that school-aged children were out late, um, Considering that the performative aspect was for and by the Tamil community and the utilization of media to communicate with other displaced Tamils was not considered as an angle in the assessment of events. Though scholar Daphne Jayapal's work stands out in her feminist critique, noting the whitening of our technological gaze Trying to view any participation of women in protests as something against the colonial and racial order. As 
calling them infantilized. So a lot of the protesters were mistaken to be uh, children when in fact they were uh, first and second year university students, um, called irresponsible uh, for coming onto the Gardner Expressway in the first place, unfit parents, um, it wasn't as when you look at it in the context of other uh, protests where children were present as well, this concern was not raised. In particular, the protests which had taken place uh, previously with cyclists uh, who brought their children onto the gardener. Um, and again, so as I mentioned before in the opening, the racialization and gendering of protests often produces uh, these scripted reactions, which are racist and sexist in nature. Um, so rather than seeing them as a revolutionary act, they get dismissed. She writes, since womanhood is constructed through gender, ethnic, um, and racial divisions within the nation, protests provide a powerful side to unpack how essentialized role of women frames them not only as the nation's biological and symbolic reproducers, but also as its ideological reproducers. Though this reading of the women leads her to conclude that the combination of cyber and on the ground activism renders them passive combatants, given also the historical trajectory since the 1980s, where women's participation as armed combatants, suicide bombers, war widows, female-headed households, and feminist peace activists um, are roles that have come up over and over again. I would, di I would diverge here from a binary discussion of white, non-white men, women, state, people towards one where grief becomes integral to protest. Most of the racist responses to the protest were framed around people importing their politics, which they supposedly should have left behind. However, in rendering the narrative of distance and invoking a false sense of ethics of proximity between the island and Canada, white ideology was being reasserted. The charge being those concerns about one's origin country to be discarded for integration into Canadian society. Again, what has been neglected in much of this discourse, as I argue, has been the need to separate the overlapping of what media theory has already postulated is our capacity to sympathize actually depends on geographical and cultural proximity. Our ability to believe, send aid, or even relate to tragedy depends on both markers. However, in examining the discourse of grief through a Tamil lens, through an indigenous or black lens, this land and race-based aspect fails in application. What I, end, what I want to end on is to consider that during the protests, the people were aware that there would be no graves to grieve. The land had been taken away by the military. The same reason refugees found themselves on Turtle Island. And whether to shift the line of inquiry towards this endless mourning depend on the mass of people who could some succumb to the violence, especially when you don't have the numbers to make it legible, or is it the number of people who continuously mourn for your loss that make it matter? Thank you.